Hello, everyone, and welcome. You're listening to Cost of Goods Sold. I'm your host, Jennifer Myers Chua, and this is episode number 15. This is Cost of Goods Sold, a podcast about the environmental and social costs of the things we buy. In each episode, we explore topics like sustainability, innovation, social entrepreneurship, the circular economy, conscious consumerism, and how we can all affect change. Be inspired by thoughtful designers and responsible creators and curators using business to create positive impact. And listen to hear the stories of those taking on the world's biggest challenges and making meaningful contributions towards a better future. In today's episode, we chat with Anang Migwang's Beam from Beam Paints. We learn how Anang's father taught her to harvest pigment near her home in Chijing First Nation on Manitoulin Island. We learn how she's been inspired by both her artist parents and indigenous paint traditions. We explore her deep connection to colors and discover why she's made the choice to use beeswax, cotton remnants, cedar and birch offcuts, and other sustainable materials over plastics for her packaging. This episode is brought to you by Hip Mummies, carefully curated wholesale merchandise for modern retail. If you want to stock your shelves with brands that are socially responsible and sustainable, or if you want to be a part of the collection that is delighting Canadian retail, visit hitmummies.ca. Pollution is nothing but the resources we're not harvesting. We allow them to disperse because we've been ignorant of their value. This is a quote that Anang shared with me, and it's by Buckminster Fuller. She brought it up during our conversation. And after learning more about Anang and her processes, it's so clear why this quote resonates with her. Anang manufactures high-quality watercolors by hand. Blending together light-fast pigments, tree sap, gum arabic, and manitoulin honey. Her paints are brilliant, and they're well-loved by her customers. She uses materials that would otherwise be waste as well from a number of other businesses to create beam paints, including byproducts from mining, offcuts from an indigenous sustainable lumber operation, and remnants from the textile industry. And Beam Paints are proudly operating as plastic-free as possible. Her packaging is completely free of plastic, and we'll learn more about what she uses and why she does so in a bit. And constantly evaluating her choices to find more sustainable solutions is something that Anung really enjoys. But what makes the story of Beam Paints so interesting is that Anung's business is the result of a multi-generational love of pigment, paint, color, and innovation. Anung was taught from a young age how to harvest pigments in the La Cloche mountain range near her home in Chijing First Nation on Manitoulin Island. And it's her early education in indigenous pigments, the fact that she sources the minerals and the pigments for bean paints locally, the influence of this artistic world that she grew up in, 
and how clearly so many of her life experiences have woven their way into this venture. Today, Anung operates out of two studios right where she grew up. She's raising her sons here. There are a lot of people and animals buzzing around. There's goats and cows and chickens, pheasants. And on either side of the property are the studios. Anung operates the fulfillment side of the business, the shipping, the packing, in her mother's old art studio, and the manufacturing of the paint from her father's art studio. Beam Paints. What Anung is trying to do with the brand and the impact she's creating is so tied to this story and so tied to this place. We're here in uh, Chiging First Nation on uh, my parents' family land. So I'm about a half an acre away from where my dad was born in a log cabin in the 40s. Both my parents were artists. They were fully self-employed as artists for my whole childhood. They had had other jobs. My mom was the first woman ever employed at the Toronto Star in the art department in the 60s. And my dad is a renowned Canadian artist. He was a Governor General's Award for Excellence in Visual Arts winner in 2004 or five, And he was also the first Indigenous artist to be purchased as contemporary art by the National Gallery of Canada in 1986. So big shoes, big uh, big thinkers. Really so much of what I do now is really so much like what my parents were doing with me when I was a kid. And uh, they were both really interested in uh, traditional ceramics and traditional pigments. So we spent, I was homeschooled, we spent a lot of my youth driving all over North America, down in the Southwest, in Arizona and New Mexico, out in BC, all parts of Ontario, and uh, visiting other artists, other ceramic or indigenous ceramic artists, painters. And all the while, my dad is looking for different pigments, different rocks. So we were always off on the side of the road, off at quarries or gravel pits, at rock cuts different different places looking for stones that had those particular qualities. And that was my favorite thing. I just loved looking around at all of the rocks and the colors and the, the differences that could be found. Could you explain how pigments work? Because I think that this is something that people might not understand where a pigment paint might come from. Can you give us an idea? of how that whole process works? Yeah, it's something that I didn't really understand. And it's definitely not widely understood, probably because the ability to make color and pigment is so, it's so broad. There are so many ways to approach it. And historically, it's been such a journey, like the us as humanity, all cultures have been really united in this search for great color, like through the centuries. So you see the history of color really igniting trade routes between Asia and Europe and uh, early explorers being really excited about sources of color. And 
a lot of color becoming so defining to groups of people, to countries. Rose Matter, Matter Red, was the red that England used for the redcoats. So they, they had huge industry in obtaining roots to get matter, to make that dye, to have that in their flag as like a national color. And that color becoming widely used was one of the first uh, synthetic colors. So the ability of humans to synthesize color gave us the ability to have more non-toxic choices of color. I think uh, even early on, because we've been such color hounds, humans used a lot of uh, dangerous substances. I think in the natural world, the most beautiful colors are created most of the time from uh, toxic substances. So like lead, cadmium, uh, heavy metals create beautiful colors. So one of the most significant things in this century has been the development of uh, non-toxic synthetics and man-made pigments. Then I kind of weighed into this in an interesting spot because I do harvest a lot of, of pigments and a lot of components for my paint. And I also use uh, man-made synthetics. So my view of it as a child of artists was that the primary focus of paint should be the quality and the safety for the user. So I, my, my father actually, my mother is in long-term care. She has Alzheimer's and my father passed away when I was pretty young, well, it's 25, before he passed away, there was there were blood tests done and chelation therapy that was to remove heavy metals from his system. He had a really high load of heavy metals. And I definitely attribute that to the fact that he, looking back through his paints, he made choices to use those colors that came from those heavy metals. And I think that the term natural gets attributed to colors of the earth. These heavy metal colors, these are naturally occurring. So I think in pigments, in paint, there's an idea that, oh, natural is healthy and good, and we want to get back to natural. And I think that's where the awareness of the natural world and the power of what's natural is not, I think we're in a time when people want to be equal and natural. So there's this kind of cartoon idea of mother earth and all things being from the earth as being cartoonally healthy and edible. When the true force of nature is that there are a lot of very, very powerful things that are not healthy. Just to go back to your original question and answer it a bit more succinctly, paint comes from so many sources, and over time it's come from so many sources. But what we're really talking about is a substance that comes from plants or minerals or is man-made in the way that we would take a, a piece of iron and let it rust and then collect the rust to make a, a color. 
those processes create man-made and natural pigments. Really what we're talking about is a substance that is going to reflect light in a certain way to make your eyes see color. And the further you get into all of that, it's absolutely fascinating because the ability of a, a, a substance to reflect color means that it's absorbing into it the opposite color and it's rejecting the color that you see. So in actual fact, that object, like say a bright red tomato, it's rejecting the red part of the light spectrum, but it's absorbing into it the green. So when in and of itself, the essence of that tomato really is a green tomato, but you look at it and you see a red tomato. And so there's a lot of different ways to look at it. It's no wonder people get confused about what kind of pigments or paints they're, they're using. So it sounds like your father, at least, was really inspired in his art by the natural world. And I was wondering how inspired you are by the natural world or what you've taken from the natural world when creating beam paints. Uh, a lot of how he approached making pigments was really from the natural world. These stones become these paints. And I found a way to hybridize his approach and... In some, in some cases, we have a set of natural colors that are, this is slate, this is graphite, this is limestone. And then we've been able to meld that with other synthetic colors. So we have really electric purples and really bright hot reds, and they're all non-toxic. So that's been really enjoyable. They're certified, uh, ASTM D4236, which is the standard for art supplies. They also meet LAMA and California Prop 65. So we don't use any of those listed uh, anything under those regulations. Can you remember an event, maybe from childhood, where you really feel like it's the first time that you made this connection with pigments and paints or really became aware of, of the process of making paint in, in general? I have a lot of those, actually, when I think back through. I also have maybe synesthesia or something like that, where I really am affected deeply by color. And um, one thing that really stands out, I think, was uh, being at a rock cut in Lacoche Mountains with my dad. He's filing a rock and he's looking for something. And then he finds one that's not it and he finds one that's it. And he files it off into my hand and he puts a little water on it. He rubs it into the palm of my hand. And then he shows me that uh, this one, this is pigment because if we wash it off, it's going to stay and everything else will just wash away. So he was showing me how to discern between those. But I remember feeling it and seeing it and having him explain it and really feeling excited and attached that we found this amazing capability inside this little rock that looks so much like all the others, but is not. It's almost magical, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it is. It's so every day I'm, I'm really amazed with what I get to do even when there's something like I can mix the same color 
many times, but even when I take, say, we're making a, an ultramarine blue and I get to take all of this blue and put it in a great big bowl. And sometimes I, I have other people who work with me and I'll have to stop them and say, Jay, look at that. Wow, that's a bowl of blue. It is just so beautiful. So blue. Is there anything that you learned from your mother and her artistic pursuits that has influenced your current business? Yeah, she was really like, well, they both worked in watercolor. and But she was the one who probably was always toting me around. Both in their own ways, they both kind of showed me ways to have an idea and explore it or have a possibility and pursue it. Like, uh, this is an avocado. It's very delicious. And we can plant this seed and grow this. It becomes a tree. And being present and feeling the authority to investigate how things are done and different ways to, to do them. They, they both were very much like that. But directly from her, I think making Rose Matter, that kind of came about from her. That was one of her favorite colleagues. And she was the one who really introduced color names to me, which I, I still really love because they're so evocative. They're so, uh, they're so personal. And there is a standard to them, but then there's also all of this variety. So each, each paint making house will have the rainbow of their colors. And there's certain colors that are kind of standard colors, like an ultramarine. But if you get an ultramarine in France, then it's a, an outremer, uh, beyond the sea. Like you, you have different ways of saying the same thing to describe the same color. One of the only colors that I've made as a as an ink that's not light fast is rose matter genuine, and it's steeped out of the roots of the matter plant. And I made that for her because it was just to feel close to her because it was her favorite color. And when I made it available to the public, I told people, we're in an interesting time where in ancient, more ancient times, pigments had to be light fast because there was no photographic ability. So that art or that writing had to endure because there was no other way. It was the recording of an event. And now... I think so many things are made to be consumed and recorded in a digital way that I think it could let us go back to exploring different kinds of color that change and are more ephemeral or maybe uh, don't have a century of, of life in them but are very tender and beautiful in the moment. So the, the rose matter ink I made it would paint on uh, peach yellow, and as the ink absorbed oxygen, it would turn a deeper pink. It was color changing on paper, and it was really, it was really an amazing, amazing paint. Do you remember the moment that you decided to take beam paints and actually create a business out of these traditions and this love that you have for paint? So. This is where things get, you know, 
business is personal, especially I think for, for women. But definitely for me, I was in a difficult relationship where my partner had uh, alcohol issues and it became really, um, became a dangerous situation for myself and my sons. Before that, and in the middle of that, I had started an art supply store. And it was very small, and I only had a season of it. But in that small window of running this little store in a very rural area, people would come in, and they loved watercolor and wanted to buy paints. And I felt like, because it was such a tiny store they wanted me to say that I made the paint like they would ask where it was from and I'd say well it's from China it's paint so this is the same paint as any other store and they always seemed so disappointed that it came from somewhere else and I remember at first thinking what do you want me to say like you want me to make the paint too and then it was after saying that that I was like I Make the paint. <laughs> I I bet you I could make the paint. But at the time, I think I voiced it out loud. And somebody heard uh, an old partner and he said, uh, it was ridiculous. Oh, no, no. So it was kind of shelved and my life uh, went through a lot of changes. We, we left that situation and I actually moved into my mom's house on her couch with my two kids who were under under five at the time. That's difficult. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was but it was a total clean slate. And it was worse than a clean slate because it was a clean slate with debt. <laughs> and uh I I ended up being left as the responsible party for debt run up in my name. I felt really freed though, because all of a sudden I didn't have to take care of this like really messy situation. I cleared it away and I was focused on myself and my kids. And I think at that point you do really think about family. I thought about when I was younger and I started making paint and making more and more paint. And it was just so enjoyable. I I felt fantastic, and that's when I started uh, an Instagram page about it, and I started offering paint for people, and just kind of continued evolving from there. It sounds almost like therapeutic, really. Yeah, it absolutely was. Yeah, absolutely, because it. I wanted that connection to my family, who my father had passed away. I didn't have older family to kind of shepherd me through this difficult point. So kind of meditating on that and sharing, I think sharing with my kids the actions and the the things that I used to do with my parents. And so we would go out to the little rock cuts. My boys would have their little rock hammers. We would go exploring, looking at stones, looking at things that could be paintable. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider taking the time to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps us spread the word about the project and about brands that are truly making a difference. On to the show. So when people were coming into your store and noticing that the paints were from China, 
and you were purchasing art supplies from the places that one purchases art supplies when stocking their shelves. Mm-hmm. When you began to look at these conventional artist paints, did you find anything surprising? Or what, what is the challenge with the traditional, conventional artist paints that you're finding on shelves? So this was funny to get to this point where I was spending all of this time to create this paint and it was so physical. It was so uh, tangible. I was making this paint from these natural materials. And then when it came time to like nest them and nestle them into a vessel or a container, all the containers were plastic (laughs) and all of the boxes were, you know, it was just really, really ubiquitous in the market that art supplies are in plastic or plastic boxes, plastic sleeves, plastic mailing. And then I I started as e-commerce. So all of the default packing is really plastic. And then this is where kind of having a, having a relationship with a lot of people, conscientious people through Instagram really affected me because I got to have that dialogue about materials and about what I was doing with a wider audience. And I remember somebody messaging me, Hey, I love what you're doing. Do you think you could ever make tape? (laughs) And I remember getting that. And it was the same feeling as like the art supply question, right? Like, do you make the paint? Make paint. That's crazy. And then I heard her say, oh, could you make tape? Because most tape is just plastic, isn't it? And it was like, oh, yeah, it is, I guess. And that's when I started really looking more at like the things, the choices I was making as an e-commerce business and the packaging that we were using there. And I really, again, got to look back to my mom and I thought about how she wrapped sandwiches and used wax paper. She was in her 20s and 60s, and she was part of the uh, anti-Vietnam War movement. She immigrated to Canada in 67 to protest the Vietnam War. She didn't want to pay taxes to the industrial military complex. You can tell she talked about this a lot. And she was always telling me stuff like, okay, well, don't use tinfoil. I'll can. They made napalm. And she would say, well, oh, plastic wrap. No, like there was no plastic wrap in my house. I never learned how to use cling wrap until I was like in my 30s. I couldn't really ever cling wrap anything properly. So she really brought those more strident values of being responsible with your your choices and uh, personal ethical responsibility. How are your paints packaged? What's your packaging look like? Our packaging is um, continually evolving to meet our needs and the customers' needs and the now that we've actually we've really grown and developed quite a lot the past few years, so we manufacture larger volumes of paint. And um, now you'll find our paints wrapped either in a sheet of beeswaxed cotton. This is a, actually an interesting evolution I'm doing right now. This was the first idea that instead of a plastic half pan, that paint would go inside a piece of 
wax canvas and that would be folded in a certain way and have a tie. So that was the first thing. And this struck such a chord with people. It really, it was really amazing to me how well received this idea was. And then moving forward to now, we're changing this idea a bit to be the same structure. But what happened was, is we started doing business with uh, Indigo, Indigo Books and Music, which is a big chain here in Canada. And one of the requirements to work with them is that you have to sign an affidavit attesting to the sourcing of cotton. So there's this whole political situation in China. And this kind of alerted me to that because it was not on my radar at all. And then I found that it was really, I could say yes, and I I did say yes. Um, I agreed to that. But I also found that it, it was practically impossible to really be sure. You could ask and people would say, but I wasn't satisfied with my degree of understanding of the supply chain of cotton. And then I started kind of thinking about, well, the the cost of cotton, fresh cotton, new cotton, is, is quite high as far as water use, land use, and pesticides. So we're shifting now to paper, and it's done in the same way. It's the same structure, the same look, but instead of a square of cotton with wax, it's a handmade paper. And the handmade paper is made out of cotton, so it's still 100% cotton, but now the cotton comes from St. Alma Pipetteri in Montreal, and they obtain skids of offcuts from the textile industry. So when a, a fabric, when a, a t-shirt company has all the little offcuts that can't be used, they get bundled up into uh, big skids of fabric. Those Offcuts get repurposed and sent to Saint Armand, where they use that cotton, linen, all the different fabrics, and they turn that into artist paper. So I'm really, really excited to be changing again. It was also, I had a lot of nerves about telling people because I didn't want to like throw a bunch of shade on cotton users, right? Like, I'm not saying it's bad to use cotton. Um, also, using beeswax, I became a beekeeper in the past few years, and I became aware more of how uh, how rare beeswax is, like how little beeswax bees actually make it when they do honey. They make so much more honey in relatively very small amounts of beeswax. And... We had a really difficult year. I lost a lot of beehives. It's been challenging. I had a tough time talking with our suppliers of beeswax and kind of hearing them. They're trying to make an order for the same amount as last year. And they were really like, I, we don't know. And there was a lot of stress there. So I still did reorder. We still do use beeswax, but we're trying to we're just trying to diversify as far as different ways that we can make so that we can adjust. And uh, without saying using beeswax is, is bad, we just want to 
have a lot of different tools, especially with supply chains in the past year and what that looks like. When you go on to Indigo's website and you look for your products, you see these beautiful wood palettes. Can you explain what that is and how you came up with the idea to use wood? So this whole process of my leaving to my mother's house with the kids and reimagining life. And during that time, I meet my my current boyfriend and we actually go on our first date to a quarry. <laughs> I had to look at rocks and things and he runs a forestry operation. So he gives me a, a space to develop my business. He gives me a garage, 16 by 20, a, a small car garage, and he clears it out and he says, okay, go ahead, make paint in there. And so I'm making paint inside of, like in this quiet spot in the middle of a working forestry operation. So there are massive machines rolling past me every day. Six foot tall tires going by out the window, excavators, large, large machines. And along with that, when the hum of the work is done, there are large stacks of wood that go to heat people's houses, fire fuel wood and different wood products. And I find myself so attracted to all of the offcuts and all of the small pieces, the sideways cut pieces, things that just end up uh, diverted to the waste stream. So I end up um, collecting these, going around the yard after hours and collecting all the offcut pieces. And then I experiment with different ways that I can put them in, in the offcuts. And eventually it becomes a, an agreed-on partnership between our two businesses. And now I subcontract wood production to Corbier Lumber, which is owned by my boyfriend and his company. They produce all of our pallets out of their offcuts from their forestry business. So it's been really, uh, really rewarding fun because it's, it's fun to work with people who are really passionate about their materials. I'm really passionate about the, the product and creative enough to look at the waste stream. I also watched you on Instagram Live a little while ago, which was great. You have a really great connection to your community. And you were speaking about language, changing the language on your new packaging. When I started my business, uh, it was really important to me to name all of the paints in my language, which is Ojibwe. My dad went to residential school at the Spanish school for boys, and he's a survivor, experienced a lot of abuse, and also people say lost their language, like that he lost his language. It sounds so passive, like you misplaced it on a walk. But for a child to speak a language and go be forced to go somewhere, to be reconditioned to have that language removed, moved from them, that they are so afraid and fearful that they cannot speak it even later in adulthood. There's so much uh, abuse and trauma there that, anyway, language initiatives have always been really close to my heart. And 
one of the reasons why I wanted to use the the language is because it's hard to encounter it anywhere. English is the dominant it's the dominant language of our, our times and it's really it's prevalent every everywhere and I wanted to give our language a slot to be to be first. So all of our labels will be uh, labeled with the color name in Ojibwe first and then the English name underneath and that was part of the shift to the paper wrappers because it enabled us instead of using wax cloth ties to use water activated paper tape printed labels to include a lot more information per item. Do you have a favorite color name? It it changes all the time. I'm a painter too, so my <laughs> favorite uh, painting is always whatever the last one was. And I just laugh about that because I'll start another one. And then when I finish it, oh, that's my favorite painting. And then fast forward six months, well, this is my favorite painting. And it, it's kind of like that with color names too. My my most recent favorite is one of our most recent colors, Wet Grizzly. So it's clear that tradition is important to you with putting Ojibwe on the packaging. You're honoring your father's legacy, really, with the paint making process. You are showing your children the merits of entrepreneurship. You are creating like low waste products, really. You're doing a lot in terms of sustainability. What part of all of the impact that you're making means the most to you, really? The personal enjoyment level, I, I really enjoy uh, approaching the waste stream and finding possibilities there. Uh, actually, some of our key ingredients that we use in all of the paints are reclaimed from the, the waste stream of quarries. And there's an indigenous quarry on the west end of Nantulin that captures different things that are actually hazardous in their workflow because they get wet and slippery, but they capture them and move them out of the way for us. Uh, being able to interact with industry in that way, especially as a woman, as a mom, to walk into the place with all the big machines and talk to people about materials and to have conversations like that, that's been really enjoyable to me. But also because um, being offered a job at a pivotal moment in my life gave me such stability it's really important to me to be able to offer employment to people who need flexible flexible employment, especially here in Chile, on Manitoulin Island. There aren't just a lot of jobs, and most jobs are really heavily heavy industry or construction. They're not really ideal for uh, working moms or single moms or people with disabilities, so I'm happy to to fill in uh, there and, and design it. Like, I didn't really realize it at the time, but being a very flexible employer has meant that we, we've been able to withstand the pandemic, I think, in better shape than other companies that have more rigid employment. So we've split our production over four locations so having it split like that meant that everybody could observe uh, COVID protocols 
and feel safe about going to work where they were working. It also meant that uh, a lot of our employees who had uh, child care issues arise out of the pandemic were able to to flex the times that they came into different locations to work. So it's been it's been good like that. I want to I want to be able to grow our company that way to be able to be a, a stronger employer. When you're looking back at all of the impact that you've created and when you're looking around you and seeing other brands that are doing really interesting things with waste, for example, how hopeful are you for the future? I'm really hopeful for the future. I think um, a big part of this was the fact that I had young kids at this juncture and they're coming back from school with concerns about the environment, concerns about global warming. And it has been really great for me to be able to tell them, this is what we're doing about it. In our corner, we are, we're responsible for making things and these are our choices and we can be responsible down to this, this minute level. And we can look for other companies who are that responsible and choose them. That definitely comes from my mom. (laughs) So being able to share that with my kids and seeing them make choices like that and feel empowered to be conscious consumers. It's my absolute joy to design and imagine new ways of presenting our product. But the core strength of it is the fact that our main goal is to make the best paint in the world. And in terms of performance and in terms of its respect for the health of our users and people who try our products, their children, them, the environment, that it's responsible. But the bottom line is that when you use our paint, we want you to be really blown away. Oh, is that blue? There is so much blue in that blue. So I'm always working on our recipes to find different ways to compact and get more blue in the blue and uh, also make sure that it really outperforms. If you want to learn more about Anung and her plastic-free paints handcrafted from harvested pigments and wildflower honey, visit beampaints.com. Looking to support a 100% Indigenous-owned business? You can purchase Anong's beautifully vibrant paint stones direct or through independent art supply stores across Canada. You can follow along with Anong and be inspired by a life full of color on Facebook or Instagram at Beam Paints. This episode was brought to you by Hip Mummies, carefully curated wholesale merchandise for modern Canadian retail. If you want to stock your shelves with carefully vetted, proven safe and thoughtfully designed brands, or if you're looking for Canadian distribution and representation, visit hipmummies.ca. Thank you for joining us this week. If you want to find out more about this episode or any of the previous episodes, please visit thecostofgoodsold.com. Have a founder story that you think we should feature? Reach out on Twitter or Instagram at ofgoodsold. My name is Jennifer Myers-Chua, and you've been listening to Cost of Goods Sold, the podcast.